right, day 239, and welcome back to the Windows and Mirrors podcast. My name is Keith, and this is a podcast where we're trying to show you that the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. We come to it to see through it and to see God, not to it to primarily look at it and see ourselves. All right, so, man, so we left off last time talking about all these, like, night visions, right? And so, um, you know, chapter 8 kind of wrapped it up, and God reassured them of his promises, regardless of what it looked like, he was going to do it. And today... We're in the kind of back half of the book. And so in this last portion of the book from now from nine until the end of the book, basically Zechariah is just going to give us uh, a glimpse into the future, into what the Messianic kingdom will look like. Right. And so in chapter nine, you know, um, the first eight verses, we have this extended poetic and prophetic oracle against the enemies of Yahweh in Israel. And the thing here um, we see is that the structure of these first eight verses in chapter nine uh, fit the same structure as many of the other prophecies in the Old Testament or specifically in the prophets that speak of the oracles against the nations. And so, you know, here we're going to see familiar regions and names like Tyre and Sidon, Ashkelon, Damascus. We've talked about those before, but we also see some other places and obscure names that are aren't really mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. But the main thing is the main thing, right? Like Israel's enemies are going to be destroyed as part of God bringing his uh, messianic kingdom, right? Like God is going to destroy the nations that come against him and that come against them, right? Um, as we talked about before. But the text shifts in verse 9, and I love this text. Um, we have the king, the messianic king, predicted coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? So it's going to say this. Um, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, this is what has been known as the triumphal entry. And so if you read the gospels, I'm um, thinking of Matthew 21, uh, John chapter 12, you see that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he comes in on a donkey. Right. And that is to symbolize just the the upside down nature of the kingdom. And we'll talk about that more as we move into the Gospels, how the kingdom is opposite, like the values in, you know, the ways of the kingdom are so counterintuitive to the way we would think in the world. Um, the king of the universe rides into Jerusalem, not with horses and chariots and an entourage, but with a donkey. Right. And so he is this humble king. He is this righteous king. He is a bringer of peace. Right. And he'll say, like. Yo, he's riding into Jerusalem. Ah, but that ain't just, that ain't the extent of his borders, my my guy. Like that ain't the extent of his territory. So he'll say, yo, his dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth, right? And you know, he's also going to talk about um, releasing of Israel as prisoners, right? So what many people would say is uh, much of Israel being in Babylon, even in being back in their land, but still under Persian captivity uh, in a sense uh, was them being prisoners. Right. And so this ransom type and redemption type language, Jesus will pick up in Mark 10 45. I'm thinking of specifically where he says, um, you know, the son of man came to uh, serve, not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so, uh, yeah, like his own life, death, burial, resurrection, we know, uh, releases us as prisoners, um, Israel and, uh, redemptive historically, but also us, uh, in who are in bondage and prison into our own sin and darkness. Um, and so, yeah, like we see all these things, man, God is just overloading us what the kingdom is going to be like. And by the end of this chapter, we see the divine warrior motif. So all throughout the old Testament, we see a lot of war and especially in like the Psalms, God is depicted as this one who rises up as a warrior, um, against his enemies and fights for his people and destroys them. 
the irony here uh, is that, you know, he's talking about this king who's going to do all this. And we see in the Gospels, Jesus don't fight nobody. He don't, he don't put his dukes up, right? <laughs> like he doesn't um, come fighting, but he comes to die, right? He comes to lay his life, life down and he defeats his enemies by dying. Um, and, and it's just so ironic, man. The Gospel is just so uh, such a just a, a, a reversal of everything we would expect. And that's just the way God does things. He does things in ways we do not expect ultimately for our good. Chapter 10. He says this, um, you know, for the idols speak falsehood. So he's still talking about the kingdom, messianic kingdom for the idols speak falsehood and the division, uh, the diviners see illusions. They relate empty dreams and offer empty comfort. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They suffer affliction because there is no shepherd. So throughout the rest of this uh, episode, man, in 10, 11 and 12, God is going to talk about this shepherd motif. Right. Um, Israel's leaders, even though the shepherd wasn't a specific office. They were all seen as shepherds because they were to care for God's people, which was God, which was God's uh, flock. And so, um, you know, one of the things that the new Testament is going to do is talk about Christ a ton as this great, good shepherd. I'm thinking of, you know, John 10 and all throughout the gospels, he sees, you know, people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And that's right out of the old Testament. Um, and one of the things we see is that we know that one of the reasons Israel suffered so profusely in the Old Testament was because of the fact that they were constantly uh, led by poor leaders, right? Poor shepherds. And whether we like it or not, man, one of the things the scriptures will tell us is that we need guidance, right? God is going to set the table here and say, without it, we wander, right? And we and you know this is true, right? Like without good shepherding, we just drift, Right. So we need a good shepherd. Um, and the text is going to get in that into a bit uh, in a bit. And, um, you know, he'll talk about the ways in which he'll do that. Right. Like the ways in which he'll still restore his people, uh, even amidst all of their unjust and uh, leaders and shepherds. He will say this. I will strengthen the house of Judah and deliver the house of Joseph. I'll restore them because I have compassion on them. And they will be as though I had never rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. It's the compassion of God that usually is the motive to his blessing, right? Like God is even in the midst of him saying, like, yo, the shepherds of you guys are terrible. Um, <laughs> he's gonna say, like, man, like I have this compassion on you guys that I'm gonna extend my grace in sending the good shepherd Christ. Um, and this theme, once again, like I said, continues all throughout 11 and 12. So basically in 11, what the Lord will show us here is that the shepherds in Israel are all corrupt. Right. And God is going to appoint the prophet Zechariah as a figurative, like paradigm shepherd And the people. Uh, you know, what we see is like, yeah, again, prophetic synax prophets perform. Uh, they act out their message in their lives. So Zechariah is going to take on a shepherd's role here and he's going to point to Christ. Right. But also, you know, we see here in this time that the people, the unjust and evil shepherds lead the people to reject this shepherd. Right. They reject him. And so by the end, we see God giving the people over to themselves and it's like, yo, all right, bet y'all want to reject the shepherd I put in place. Say less. No, no problem, my G. Boom. I'm going to give y'all what y'all really want. Y'all want bad shepherds. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to give y'all bad shepherds. Right. And then just, yeah, God giving our <laughs> Romans one, right. God giving us over to the desires of our heart. Um, God shouldn't give you everything you want. Right. Side note, God, don't don't say, man, God is giving me everything you want. That ain't that ain't a good thing because we don't always want good things. Right. And so um, 
All of this points remarkably to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the true good shepherd who is rejected by the leaders of Israel over and over in the Gospels. We'll see how he's uh, has just such antagonism with the leaders of Israel because they're poor shepherds. And that thus leads so much of the people of Israel to reject his saving kingdom reign and message. Zechariah 12. All right. So we talked about that <clears throat> shepherds. But, you know. Here in Zechariah 12, God is going to finish off speaking about the way in which he will give salvation to Judah and how Judah and Jerusalem will be the instrument, right, in God's hand to judge the nations, right? So in this text from 12 to the end of the book, you're going to see this phrase on that day, on that day, on that day. And, you know, it's all it's repeated throughout this chapter and 17 times from 12 to 14, you'll see that phrase. And, you know, he'll say Jerusalem will be a cup. Now that causes the staggering of the nations. Remember the cup of God's wrath mentioned a ton in Isaiah. I'm not, I'm sorry, not Isaiah in Jeremiah. Um, and it's just, yeah, God's wrath <clears throat> that is poured out and it causes men and women to stagger. And so on that day, he'll say on that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that on that day, the one who is weakest among them will be like David on that day. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. So not only will, you know, Jerusalem have this hand on, um, on, on, um, the judgment of the nations, but also we see this major reversal here. So we see, you know, the weakest in Jerusalem will become as mighty as David, right. And will receive the type of glory that he received, right. While the line of David specifically will receive a God-like glory, right. And so once again, the new Testament will pick up on all of these things, um, and say that, yes, like, um, Christians, believers, you know, for the rest of human history will be exalted with their king. We will reign with Christ. Like that is the, that is the end goal of the Christian life. Christ is king. He comes to save us, to bring us up where he is. And we reign with him forever. And we will judge in a sense. I don't know how all that's going to work out, but we will judge the world right with Christ. Christ will say that at his own mouth. Um, and so he's playing on all those themes here that God is taking those who, again, were humble through judgment and exalting them up with the king interestingly interestingly enough uh you know god says something at the end of this text that i think i'll be remiss if i passed over so he'll say this then i will put a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of david and the residents of jerusalem and they will look at me whom they pierce stop right there god is the subject of this sentence he's going to pour out his spirit grace and, and prayer on the house of david um but he says they're going to pierce me right super interesting they will mourn for him as one who or as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one who weeps for a firstborn. in other words god is going to pour out a spirit of blessing grace and mercy and this will somehow simultaneously Right. Have something to do with the one whom they have pierced, which is God himself. Right. And John chapter 19, verse 37 tells us once again, this is about the Lord Jesus and his crucifixion. Listen, the text is trying to say and the Bible is trying to say the crucifix, the crucifixion is God's upside down, unlikely in a paradoxical way of blessing his people, right? The day on that day, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament was both, both, depending on the context, 
a day of judgment and a day of restoration. We see at the cross that God brings judgment and he brings restoration, right? Restoration from sin and the powers of darkness is secured. This blessing is secured in the judgment that comes on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way in which you do things. There are ways that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. There's just so many ways that you do things that we would never in all of eternity conceive to do them, Lord. We thank you for your manifold wisdom, that you're infinitely uh, wiser and smarter and better and more good than we are, God. Uh, I pray that we would uh, cling to that and remember that when life seems to be.